This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. In the traditional way we did it, we made it too hard for the news side to tell the truth and too easy for the opinion side to lie. Hello and welcome to Zerkline Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a Turn the Tables episode. Kara Swisher, the host of the phenomenal Recode Decode podcast, founder of Recode, a friend of mine, she had me on her podcast, but also she had me live in San Francisco at Manny's, which is a cool new space over there, to talk about the future of journalism, uh, to talk about what is going wrong, what is going right, how it is changing. And we sort of go back and forth. So it's partially me interviewing her. It's a lot of her interviewing me. At some point, it's the audience interviewing both of us. But it gets at a lot of the things I've been obsessing over and trying to work through on the show, the ways journalism is changing, the ways in which maybe we're not doing always the job we should be or need to be, and also the ways that technology is changing us, right? The ways that sort of these complex systems are running into each other. Kara is a very – she's just like a blast to talk to. Um, Her podcast is great if you don't subscribe. But I had a lot of fun doing this and I thought you all would enjoy it. So putting on the show today. You can get more Recode Decode uh, by subscribing to Recode Decode wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You can help this podcast out by rating it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your podcast listening. But here is Kara Swisher and me talking about everything. So tonight's conversation is about the future of journalism. Um, A lot has changed in the field of journalism over the last 10 to 15 years. And they're going to talk a little bit about what has changed what's happening now, and their perspective on the future. And these are two people who are so qualified to talk about this very topic, probably two of the most qualified people in the country. So we're honored to have them here at the corner of 16th and fucking Valencia in San Francisco at My Small Business. Um, Real quick, the goal of Manny's is to create a central place for people to become better informed and more involved citizens. That's what this is about. We have events every night this week, next week, and the week before ours. And without further ado, Kara Swisher and Ezra Klein. Thank you. Wow. Oh, goodness sake, the future of journalism. Jesus Christ. (laughs) That is true about Sally Gates. I have a huge man crush on her. Um, And then she texts me, and I'm like, oh, Sally Gates, every time it happens. And I have to say, no, I can't have dinner with you, Sally, next week. Next time I'm in D.C. Anyway, it was such a good week, too. Think about it. I mean, I get the whole lowdown on Michael Cohen. I I was going to get takeout. Yeah, okay, okay. (laughs) 
Um, I'm anyway, not, I'm not getting pickup to be here. Come on, it's like to this week. Come on, I'd like to like line up her and Preet Bharara and just hit them until they tell me everything. Anyway, so uh, so we're going to talk about the future of journalism. Ezra Klein is my friend, and he is my colleague at Vox Media. Um, we are now. Uh, what are we? Partners. Partners. We are now partners. We're doing a lot more stuff together. Ezra just moved to the Bay Area. And so let's give him a round of applause for being here. I have just moved halftime, not halftime, a third of the time to D.C. because my kids are there. So we sort of have traded places a little bit, but I'm here a lot also. And I want to sort of get started. Ezra, I wanted you to talk a little bit about why you moved here. What was the, the thinking? You, you've gotten sort of infected by the tech bug in a lot of ways, and kind of even by the idea, not not the not the bad one, um, but but what? Talk a little bit about why you're here and what you're thinking about, and then we're going to get into talking about journalism and other topics. So, like any move, um, a bunch of it was personal. Yeah. Uh, I'm from California. I'm from Irvine, uh, California. I've been in D.C. for 15 years. I actually love D.C., but that is also a long time to be in D.C. And I took a a, a book leave out in Half Moon Bay earlier this year. And I just felt like I could think. Um, there was just space from the news cycle, which I've lived in a kind of news response mode for 15 years. I've been, I've been there for a long time doing that. And I don't think I had realized just like how loud the buzzing in my own mind was. And so part of it was just being out there, having a little bit more room, having a little bit more elevation. What is a political conversation has gotten more and more bizarre. And more and more, and we can talk about this in our future of journalism talk, I think more and more distorted by the actual journalistic conversation itself. Um, part of it is, you guys have such nice weather out here. <laughs> I mean, everybody wants a like, big picture, but the weather, we left Half Moon Bay and we got back into a DC heat wave and like two weeks later, we're like, eh, what if the weather could just be nice all the time? Um, the other thing though, and, and this is what Kara's alluding to with the tech bug, this story here to me has become really interesting. I mean, my work as a journalist is I cover problems of governance. I cover the way governance fails. I cover the way governance succeeds. I'm interested in the way institutions are governed and the policy that comes out of that governance. Silicon Valley, for a long time, was a story of innovation, and of course, in some ways still is. But I think for a lot of us now who have to live in the world that you all have created, it's now a story of governance. How do you govern these platforms? How do you govern these companies? How do you govern organizations and products and tools and institutions that have more power than they ever anticipated, that don't fit into a lot of our traditional models? Um, and so that story of governance, particularly as I began to feel that everything in politics was increasingly downstream of changes that had particularly been wrought in our communications by tech, um, coming out to spend more time thinking about and trying to understand that governance problem and where it was going uh, was really appealing to me. All right. So you moved out here. You moved to Berkeley, correct? You're, you moved- uh, I, I did not, but I'm, I'm a very private person and okay. I'm not telling you all where I moved. All right, okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. So you moved. You all know enough about me. Uh, enough about you. So you, you moved out here because you wanted to understand it to be part of the culture here, like to figure out because you, because you think this is the story. This is the, yeah. this is the journalism And story. it's a strange culture. Right. I mean, it yeah. is a different intellectual culture. I mean, the people here are peculiar. They're peculiar people. Yeah. Um, the institutions here are different. And this is coming from different. D.C., so that's a low bar. But yeah, right. Um, it's, it's, it's true. I always say that um, one thing I think that is interesting about the two places is that D.C. is this place where the culture is defined, is, is shaped by people watching solvable problems prove impossible to solve. And Silicon Valley is shaped by people watching impossible problems prove possible to solve. 
And that second one sounds better. And for a long time, when I said it, it really sounded better. But it also can create a kind of optimism and a heedlessness that can be a problem. Um, sometimes the caution you get in D.C. is not the worst thing in the world when you're making decisions that have literal life and death consequences. But so trying to understand the culture and the way people think and the way they're making their decisions, trying to be able to inhabit the minds of, of, of the people creating this stuff that we're all, that we're all living amidst, that's part of it. I do think a lot of my work is about building models of what's going on, sometimes many at once, to try to like be able to kind of understand how the pieces fit together. And I never feel like I can do that very well from afar. Right. And so getting out of D.C. is, is important. Let's talk a little bit about the D.C. Uh, news culture right now, because you started uh, you were first at The Washington Post, as I started also at The Washington Post, and you had a thing you were doing there and then moved on to create another thing, and then was at Vox in D.C., and sort of, I don't want to call you a creature of D.C., but you were, there's a, you were a little... Skittering little... Skittering little creature, a little cockroach of D.C. Um, no, but, you know, you reminded me a lot of Michael Kinsley, you know what I mean, like that kind of thing, like there was, there, there's a culture of people, very smart uh, people talking, uh, journalists that cover D.C., but, it, it, but the shift, I find it really interesting that you're here now, that you think this is important, but talk about the culture of... of of journalism happening, what, what has what has occurred. It's been a certain way. F- I left D.C. because I didn't want to cover the Clinton administration at the time. I, I just, I didn't want to rise at the Washington Post. Um, I didn't want to cover the White House. I thought it was a prison for reporters. I thought it was a very incestuous culture. Um, but talk about it now as as you left it, how you look at how politics is being covered in, I, in, this, in the sense it's being I done now. I don't think in the way that you're talking about that the journalism culture is a D.C. culture. I think it's now Twitter culture. And and I believe this, I think this is a real problem. I'm much more hair on fire about this than a lot of my colleagues. So know that when you hear this, um, this is an opinion of mine that a lot of people disagree with. But I think the fundamental force shaping political journalism now is Twitter. I think every political journalist I know, with a couple of exceptions, is on Twitter all the time. All their friends are on Twitter. The feedback loop is incredibly fast. I mean, what what is a journalist, right? Like on some level, like what do what do these people? What do we do? And we find things out or think things up. Then we publish whatever we came up with somewhere. Then we get some kind of feedback and then we do it again. And all that used to be pretty slow. And what Twitter did was it made it really fast. I mean, you can look at Twitter within two minutes and know if your tweet is taking off. Like within, you can reload the thing. It's like, oh, did it get, is it at a hundred? And then it's going to go to a thousand. Like you can run all this out. Um, there's this intense, incestuous, herd-like, uh, political journalism Twitter culture. And, one of the things that it's doing a bunch of different things simultaneously, but one, I think it's making everybody talk about and think the same things all at the same time. Um, the best journalists are the people who are finding things out or seeing things or hearing things that the other journalists aren't, right? You got to be pretty damn smart to look at what everybody else is looking at and see something they're not going to see. And most of us are not that smart. And Twitter is making us all dumber because we're seeing the same shit all the time. Um, two, I think it makes us meaner. And I think it displays us often at our worst. Um, I don't think it's been good for our audience's trust in us. Um, three, there is different kinds of stimuli create different kinds of product. Uh, if you are out reporting something, my wife, um, who Annie Lowry at The Atlantic, a former Recode, Decode guest, 
Um, she's a really remarkable reporter. I mean, she goes out, she goes out into, you know, very unusual places and sees things other people don't see. I have tremendous admiration for what she does. I'm much more, as, um, as Kara put it, a little bit of like a Michael Kinsey like character. Like, I like sit and stroke my chin and, and, and. He actually does. I do. It's, it's, uh, I have like a whole like chin stroking, um, setup. But, it doesn't work. Um, it's not good work. It's never good work unless I'm actually doing the research to find things, to build models, to like find evidence, to like read appendices that, that other people aren't doing. And so that work where you're generating something new and then applying it as a lens onto the world, it can often be really good. But if what's happening is somebody said something and you're reacting to it, right? Or you read something and you're reacting to it, which is the culture of Twitter. Twitter is a functionally reactive culture. It's a reactive product. Um, hey, somebody said X, like, you know, come back at it, clap back. I think it's created, um, it's created a more reactive take economy, right? I think part of the rise in takes is economic but part and digital, but part of it is, part of it is Twitter. But the other thing I do think it creates is more reactive coverage. We're all reacting to the same information, and so covering things more reactively. So talk about that because so, so, just, so, but there is a DC political culture, yes. that, that uh, journalism culture, that's sort of um, leading the way in, in that way. In terms of, or is it not? Do they have to I, even have to be there? I think yeah. they're weaker now. So, like, what leads the way right right now? So, well, was cable all, news is all New York, right? Right. And I think that's a pretty powerful culture, like particularly in this era. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think DC journalism culture is probably more powerful under Obama than it is under Trump. Mm-hmm. Cable's more important under Trump than it was under Obama. Um, podcast culture is important, I think, increasingly. Like you have like sort of like on the left, the crooked media folks, like on the right, people like Ben Shapiro, you have like the ID, the intellectual dark web people, a lot of them were out here. A lot of that is in California, oddly enough, right? Um, both on the left and the right. I, I don't want to take away from your point that there's a, a DC political culture. I do think the DC political culture got cracked and traumatized by Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it exists as a kind of cohesive force in the way certainly I felt it to under the Bush or Obama presidency. That you've been covering before. Yeah, it, it doesn't, it's much more unsure of itself. I think a lot of the driving parts of it are outside of it now. And again, not everybody, a lot of people doing important driving worker in DC and just a lot of the work is there. You can't get away from the fact that DC has a culture of its own, but I, I don't think it's as powerful in politics as it used to be. Like people used to talk about the Georgetown cocktail circuit. Yes. To my knowledge, like, Nobody's ever been to Georgetown at this point. Like right. people just stopped going right. like ten years right. ago. Right. Um, right. I think I, a lot I, of those I rode things. I a nice weekend. scooter over there recently. It was we'll nice. See? Yeah. You, maybe, maybe it's coming back. Well, I went to Georgetown. Yeah, it's true. No, there was no cocktail party. I just was riding the scooter around. Okay. So you just you're spending yeah. a lot more time there. Like, yeah. How is it different than when you were there? Well, I covered the, um, you know, I was at the Washington Post. I covered parties, if, if you can believe it. I started in the style section covering parties where things happened. I know it sounds crazy. I would but be so bad at that job. I know. I, you'd be terrible. You'd be like sitting in the corner. <laughs> you'd be sitting in the corner. I, my job was essentially to get Teddy Kennedy to say something stupid. That was my job, which was not very hard because he drank a lot. But um, but it was, so I would, what would happen is there would be something, something that happened that day, whether it was like, you know, a big piece of legislation or, or whatever, whatever the news of the day was. And then the style section of the Washington Post would send out young party reporters to go to whatever, like the, the Agriculture Association's party or John McLaughlin had a party or whatever. Someone had a party and you went there and then you made a story of the day from the party, which actually there was a party culture, a cocktail party culture. And then that, a lot of that was, was formed. A lot of policy was formed that way. A lot of the way the, the, the city worked was that way. And that doesn't exist. You're right. It's all... Uh, Everyone's sort of, you know, looking down 
at their phones um, and, and reacting, doing reacting and reacting to reacting and reacting. Um, I have been to a number of parties recently. I went to one at David Gregory's house. Uh, his wife is Beth Wilkins, who is a very fa- well-known litigator. Um, and so I've been to a lot, and I've been to a business roundtable thing with Jamie Dimon, and it's a really interesting culture. I find the political cult- the journalism culture in D.C. to be incredibly docile. I find them very, very docile. I find myself extraordinarily rude in the culture, you know, which I'm, I find myself here. Is that here. not true here? Yes, it is. It is, but they seem to, they seem to be used to it. I was at a, a, a thing for the business roundtable, which is this building in, near Union Station. Have you been to one of those dinners? Uh, I've, been to, I've been to their thing, not to a dinner. Well, you go to dinners. Essentially, they bring famous... Uh, CEOs in, and then you sit and have dinner with them at like a like a boardroom table. It's really awkward, you know. It's really like not a nice place. And I was so I showed up looking like this, essentially, and everyone's all real dressed up, like to the nines. And I'm like, oh hi, good to see you. And they put me in a good spot. There's like the status spot. On I, I pay a lot of attention to status in Washington. It's sort of like being sort of like. Um, the, the Hunger Games, the city, the capital. You know what I mean? Like where you're sitting. And I was sitting, on one side was Doug, uh, the guy who's the CEO of Walmart, on the other, the CEO of Lockheed Martin. And uh, across from me is Jamie Dimon. So I was like, oh, I got the good seat. I'm in the good seat. This is real good. And as it started, they were pontificating on, I think it was China and the China tariffs and this and that. And it was, was really, what was really interesting, this was off the record, oh, well, too bad. Um, and, um, and, uh, and they were, they were go- talking about different things. And Jamie, who I know pretty well, uh, said something about China, about tech. And I was like, like that. I said it loudly. And, and he was like, excuse me, Karen. I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's like, what do you have to say? I said, well, everything you're saying in your ma- out of your mouth is wrong. And I don't know what to say. And I'm, I got to say, and the guy next Lockheed's like laughing. And then Dylan's over here saying, oh, Kara, stop it. And I'm like, no, but he's wrong. Everything he's saying is completely stupid. And the rest of the reporters don't say a word. It was, ast- it was an astonishing display of lack. And then what happened is like, as Kara said, like, you know what I mean? And it was fascinating to watch the sort of weird There was no journalism going on. I don't know what was happening. Yeah, there's a lot. There's definitely a lot of that. The the other thing, though, that I think you're getting at there, which I I do think is part of this whole story, is that, look, D.C., why was it useful to be in D.C.? In in part because access can be useful. And there's a lot of access journals in Washington, D.C. One reason I think that the culture there is breaking down, though, is that the access is becoming less and less useful. Right. So one, the institutions themselves are right. weakening. The, right. We were talking about parties reporting, but like political party reporting, the political parties are weakening. Um, a lot of their functionaries are in D.C., but, eh, you know, they're on Twitter and like they're not that mm-hmm. interesting and they're not they're a lot less powerful than they used to be. You might have. Um, there's value to knowing the people who went into the Trump administration, uh, you know, if you're doing Trump administration reporting, but it isn't a cohesive thing like previous administrations yeah, have been. You, need- you, you know, I started when I stepped down as editor-in-chief, I'm like, well, may, maybe I should do more White House reporting again. I used to right. do a lot of that under Obama and a bit under Bush. And I began sitting down and talking to these folks. And I like really quickly realized that one, most of them don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And two, they're mostly just, they're not, they're I'd never reported on a White House. It was not trying to make arguments for what it was doing. They're just like backbiting each other. I was like, yeah. there's no information here. There's a drama. And like you can like maybe uncover some things, yeah. but it's not 
the institutions themselves are less valuable to have access to. The people themselves are out like tweeting up a storm. They're on cable news all the time. And so, you know, that whole Georgetown yeah. cocktail circuit, like the idea was you'd be near Teddy Kennedy. Right. But, and then he you know, slips on. He and tells he you something. something. And, little, and I'm not saying there's none of that. It's just that the value of it has gone down and so it's also, much. It's, what's really interesting. It's changed the culture. What's really interesting is they vomit up information there. I mean, it's not that hard here to get you all to talk, but there it's like, Kara, did you know that the we're about to invade France. I'm like, whoa, okay, thank you. Okay, thank you for that. They're, they're, it's an incredibly, and, and the, well, the other part is that you go, like, I literally write, you know, like, Trump is a goblin or something like that on Twitter, like, or, you know, whatever, that particular morning I'm feeling like. And, and I'm, then they'll call me from the White House, like, hey, come over and visit. And I'm like, okay. There, there's a, that is, sure. that is by far the part of DC that, I mean, maybe yeah. it's what makes it work, but it is the weirdest, the kind of, it's all in the game mentality. Yeah. Yeah. The, you, one of the really common things that I've happened as a reporter, and you see, I'm sure, I'm sure you have this, um, is that you'll write something really searing about someone and then their staffer will call you and like fight with you all day, like yeah. all day. They will not stop like screaming at you and you're like, yeah, but your boss actually is an asshole or he was lying or like whatever it might have been. And then at the end, like, well, okay, like I, let's get a drink sometime soon. Yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. And it's this very weird, like, you build relationships through conflict. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's fine. Yeah, it's a good way all, for things to work. Don't you think that happens? Out. That's still, like, an old journalism thing, right? You know? I've, as you say, like, I've spent most of my career in D.C., so maybe it's true everywhere. Yeah, it's But really I cool. find that there's a lot of yearning for the, um, you know, they fight all day and then they, like, go to the same dinners and parties at night culture of D.C. It's still there a little bit, but I think it's lesser. Yeah, but I've always found it very odd. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So let's talk about how that affects everything in terms of, of, of the future of journalism. Now, so now that you're here, talk a little bit about what you're studying, because I think one of the things you and I have talked a lot about is the impact of social media, not just social media, but cable social media on what journalism is. To me, journalism is still sort of block and tech reporting, like calling, 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 uh, finding things out, trying to get to the truth of things, um, which has been shifted a little bit by the fact that you're right, 
anybody could get. You don't need to figure out, for example, what someone thinks because they tell you what they think immediately on the Internet or, or on Twitter or wherever they decide to, to do it. And Trump has changed the game in terms of reporting in that way by just spewing whatever he says every single day. And so what's the biggest impacts on journalism right now from your perspective? Yeah. I want to offer a disclaimer here quickly. You know when you have, you're working on something in your head, but it's sort of still a blob? No. So <laughs> I've been trying to, to work through this question, and it's currently in my head like this giant like blob, so I'm worried it's all going to come out very inarticulately. But Don't you I think this partner's just going to develop? I'm going to be like, yeah, let's go. And he's going to be like, <laughs> just a second, let's think about it. <laughs> um, so a couple things. So one... I think journalism is a lot of systems that are colliding in really weird ways right now. And so like the the couple that I think are the most important are one, people have way more choice than they ever did before. Two, there's much more competition for your attention than there ever was before, not just um, it, within journalism, but with everything, like ev- the number of things anybody can do. Like we are in competition with Netflix. We are in competition with um, you being here, right? You're here. You're not clicking on box articles tonight. Like you're doing something different. And They might be. They might, right. Yeah, I guess you guys have phones. Um, and then there's Trump um, and the kind of weaponization or, or the demonization of the press. Uh, and then there's distraction and there's social media and algorithms and everything's coming together in weird ways. But the big thing to me that's happening right now is that we are losing control in journalism over like what is the idea of newsworthy. Like we are losing control of the agenda if we ever had it. But I think we've become very, very, very reactive. And I think Donald Trump uses that very much to his own advantage. There's this day I keep thinking about. It was a couple of weeks ago. Um, this was right after the guy who had been sending bombs to journalists' house uh, homes and offices had been caught. So the next day, Donald Trump um, sends out a tweet that morning because it's the world we live in. And the thing says um, the real – and he knows a language to use. He didn't say the fake news. He said the real enemy of the people. The media is the real enemy of the people. The day after the guy trying to kill the media, the Trump fan trying to kill the media was arrested, sends out this tweet, the real enemy of the people. So the media goes nuts, right? Because like that's fascist. That's That day, for the first time in some number of weeks, a long number of weeks, Sarah Huckabee Sanders called a press conference, a public press briefing. She had not had any of these four weeks. She had stopped having them. She had explained why she'd stopped having them. But she calls one that day. And sure enough, at that press briefing, Jim Acosta gets up from CNN, and he and Sanders get into a fight. And then the Trump White House takes away Acosta's press pass, and there's a fight about that. And what they were doing was completely calculated. They made a series of moves, a language Trump used that day, the decision to hold a press conference, so there would be a televised showdown between Acosta and Sanders. Then I looked at the foxnews.com homepage. Like, there was a huge splash with Sanders' face. What do you do when the fight between the president and the press is the president's storyline? Right when he was elected, Steve Bannon um, gave an interview to the New York Times. Like Again, Steve Bannon, as chief strategist, gave an interview and said, you need to understand you're the opposition. The media is the opposition. And so 
One of the things going on right now is that there is like Trump is a very good media manipulator and like he works at the intersection of like our hunger for ratings, our like like hunger for things that are outrageous and interesting, the way we operate in competitive pressures with others, like what gets pushed up through algorithms, like the way he's able to dominate Twitter. Then he knows like exactly how to like move move the conversation to the fights he wants to be having. Not the positive press for himself. We don't cover that stuff positively, but it's a fight he wants. Him versus the media, not corruption at the EPA. Him versus the media, not the fact that he's actually like trying to make Medicaid harder to use when he promised that he'd give everybody health insurance. And one of the things that I think we are not good at in journalism right now, one thing I think we're really failing at is we do not have enough of a sense of our own newsworthiness. We do not have a sense of like, what is our agenda to cover? What isn't, isn't important to resist what's become extremely sophisticated, sophisticated forms of media manipulation and particularly resist it when it's already dominating social media because so, we take so that as our assignment how, editor. How do, you, how do you combat that then? Because one of the things, I mean, it, it, it's, it's setting- I need a way to combat well, it? Well, is there, a, is there a way to combat it? Because there, there is, there's always been agenda setting. Like, look, whether you like it, whether you think it or not, you were talking about we've lost the narrative of newsworthiness. But you know, the fact of the matter is, for many decades, you know, seven white guys at CBS, seven white guys at NBC, New York Times, determined the news, like up on the Upper West Side of New York, essentially, or Upper East Side of New York. And, and that's a different thing, too. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the agenda setting. And in this case, it's just that someone's taken it, taken the tools that this that Silicon Valley has created and are using them in in a different way but that's essentially become the you know the the punch list that you would have at, at any editorial meeting of a, of a big newspaper which you and I have both been to those like at the Washington Post mm-hmm. or the, at the Wall Street Journal and it's just deciding what the news is and what's happened is I think we've abrogated we've rushed after it we've rushed after yeah. it like idiots like in some way yeah, I think that's right. So what? So how do you then combat it? One of the things I was thinking about a column of writing about is what if what if Twitter wouldn't do this, but what if Twitter took what would Donald Trump do without Twitter, for example, or what would Blank do without Twitter? And it doesn't have to be Donald Trump, but he happens to be the best user of the platform around, essentially. Um, what would what would certain figures do without it? What would be their power? And I was trying to think. What, where, where would they go? What would happen without that particular tool? Would it work on Facebook? Would it work, I guess, cable is there, but it doesn't reach quite as many people. Um, and it's a really interesting question when you, start to, when you start to remove those tools from them. My theory is that Twitter is important to Donald Trump because of how he uses it on the media. Like the, Donald Trump's Twitter power is not actually his Twitter account. It does reach a lot of people, but it's you know not that many people, and it's quick and it's going by. Its force multiplier is the media. It's an agenda setter for us. He's using he's using us in that way in a in a way where he's able to much more tightly define the message. Um, I don't know honestly what you do about it. I mean, part of it is like you have to be editorially thoughtful. What you were just saying, I think, is 100% true. You rewind the clock 30, 40 years, you have seven white guys on the Upper East Side deciding the news. Like, that's not good either. Um, I came up as a blogger, right? My first job, quote unquote, in journalism was blogging. And I, I, I was a blogger forever. I still, in some ways, think of myself as a blogger. And one of the things that I felt then was, oh, isn't it so great? There's like nothing in between me and the publish button and like I can do everything like at full speed and there are no gatekeepers. Like I was big on there being no gatekeepers. And as things got faster and faster, one of the, and I began to work at different institutions and see different publishing cycles and different ways that things worked, is you begin to realize that um, time, the fact that it maybe takes time to publishing sometimes 
it creates space where judgment can creep in. And I often think that if you're getting the information about the news from things that are a little bit slower right now, you're often better informed than you're staying up to the minute on Twitter. You're seeing things Oh, wait, things are you develop. talking about artisanal news right now? <laughs> no, I like, I like it mass-produced but slow. Okay. <laughs> you know, actually, uh, Nicole Wong from Twitter, who used to work at Twitter and Google, we, I did a podcast with her, was talking about a slow food movement for the internet. It was a yeah. really interesting. There was, was this great piece by, um, uh, I'm going to buy Justin Coslin, I think it is. He runs Jigsaw, um, the, mm-hmm. the Alphabet. Do people really call it Alphabet out here? Do, no does everybody does. just say Google? No, we okay. just say Google. Um, so anyway, guy who runs Google's Jigsaw. I say, I say the Borg. <laughs> and he wrote this great piece about the need to see friction as a good thing on the internet sometimes. Like the, the idea that a lot of our problems online, he was talking about like hackers and malware and all kinds of other things. Things, but but the idea that this making everything faster and easier and swifter and cleaner and like making sure there's absolutely nothing in between your impulse and the expression of that impulse, like that's actually a problem. Sometimes you need friction. Like there's a reason I don't keep Oreos in my house. Like I need friction between me and Oreos. Right. And and I They're do think delicious. there's some of that. I do think there's some of that in editorial processes. Yeah. I mean, we think about this a lot at Vox, and there's a lot of we are, I think, getting better, and I think this is true for a lot of newsrooms, getting better at letting pitches go by. I see. Interesting. Because I was just, that's, a, that's an interesting question that you do, that you sit and actually think about things. I actually do like the speed of it a lot. I do. Like, I'm very pleased with it. I'm, I like, <laughs> some days I'm like, boom, I go. And I'm like, yay, good for me. But yeah. you do, you're actually, I, I think I'm, I hear you saying that, but I don't think it's true. I don't. You're, you're not, in, in what you produce journalistically, yeah. most of it is actually on slower time frames. You do New York Times columns. Right. You, um, I think I wrote podcasts. one in 45 minutes the other day, but go ahead. But they don't come out for a couple days. No, no, right away. <laughs> a China well, one. Mind. I landed in New York, wrote it, and it was up by an hour and a half. Well, so there you go. So maybe, right. maybe I'm wrong. But okay. I, I do think that a lot of your work... Um, I knew this. Your stuff. work has like a space I, of context. Yes, I knew this. Stuff. I mean, it was stuff I already knew, so it wasn't. It was, I had been working on it for a long time. I just was able to stem. I, what I like about it, what I like about journalism now, is the speed of it. Like getting stuff out, getting ideas and concepts out there, really quickly to actually not just test them on people, but to get reaction. I'm very. When I started in journalism, I put my when I was at the Washington Post. I used to way way back. Not many people had email addresses. You know, if you, no, not you people. You don't remember it, but you didn't. Um, and you, I put my email address at the bottom, and a lot of the reporters were like, what are you doing that for? The readers will talk to you. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for feedback, which was interesting. And I really enjoy the feedback. I think the story only starts once I put it up. And then I have a really interesting time with it. Or I test out concepts. Like right now, I have this, I, I, I'm working on a, on a column about uh, how Silicon Valley people can take money from the Saudis as this gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm, I'm testing it on Twitter, actually. I'm like, I keep putting up, oh, look at what the thugs did now. Look at this, oh, Silicon Valley people. And then I wait to see what the reaction is and get ideas and concepts from it. And then I, then it starts to formulate in me. So I, I guess that's a slow way to do it. I, 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 I'm so sympathetic to this way of, of doing Twitter and journalism. And I also have come to think it's so dangerous. Now you, you, you like, you live on the Thank edge. You. Yeah. Like you, <laughs> like you court disaster and like eat yes. catastrophe for breakfast. But <laughs> for, for those of us who don't quite have, have your metabolism, yeah. and I've seen this happen to a lot, both to me and to some of my colleagues, there's this tendency to treat Twitter like a comedian treats... Um, jokes, yeah. Not, jokes. not just jokes, but like, 
like small town clubs, like as a place to work out material. It's like, okay, so so like the structure of what we're going to do here is we're going to work out our material where it has to be constrained to be shorter and less nuanced in the place where it gets the least generous read of any place on earth you could possibly (laughs) do it. And it's most easy to grab it, embed it, and pull it out of context. And like, that's where we're going to try out our new ideas. Right. Like no editors, like no, and I see it happen and you do get good things. Um, I wish we could set up a new culture around some of these things. Twitter would be so great if we could all agree to be generous on it. Um, if there was some that's way, that's a to bad say, day for that. This is a bad day for that because of Jack's like huh? multi-part. You know about this? No, of course you don't. Okay, um, <laughs> Jack Dorsey tweeted a multi-part thing about doing some kind of meditation with mosquitoes. I'm not really clear what was going on. Excuse me. He was meditating in Myanmar and he forgot to mention the genocide, and people got mad on Twitter. On the Twitter. Oh, that seems like a. But he put yeah. a multi-part series about this. I, I, I could have respect for people's meditation, but it was the most tone deaf series of things that you ever want to see. So he put up like a multi-part series, does not mention genocide in any way. It was like, here I am in Myanmar having fun. And it was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Myanmar's, there's some people dying there. And so people went crazy, were mean to him. And then Fred Wilson wrote a piece saying, don't be so mean to Jack because he's meditating. And it went on and on. And I was like... And and you're you're asking me why I don't love Twitter. Right, I know, but... So, but, but, was, but let me. But, make, but to, it was interesting. Because, but anyway, move along. But, but, but to that point, the thing that I think is there was an Apple. The watch. thing I mean a little bit is like I would, I would like to have. I do think it. I think there's a really good quality of risky ideas, right? I, I one thing I loved about blogging was this ability to be wrong in public. Yeah. Um, when I was when I and I was younger, and so like I didn't have an institution behind me, but this feeling that I could try out an idea, and oftentimes people come in the comments and be like, you know, that's actually just wrong. Like the if you knew the first thing about this, you know it was wrong. It's like, oh, that's great, that was wrong. Now I know it's wrong. Like it's a, it's a useful thing to have happen, and I want that. I want that ability for myself, for for my colleagues to be riskier with ideas because, you know, even if a bunch of those are wrong, sometimes you get somewhere good. But in the long run, you can't have that in a dangerous space, right? You can't have that in a place where there's a lot of risk. And particularly for people and and younger journalists who don't have um, established reputations and the the training training. and a really good sense of the conversation. I mean, my... A lot of my views on this come from being editor of Vox for four for four ish years and um and then and before that at the at Wonk Blog and the Washington Post. And just having it happen both to me and to people um I I managed or cared about it at other institutions, like watching them get blown up and like feeling this terrible like we can't protect like I can't help. Like right. it wasn't so under the thing. Talk about let's talk about both of us, talk about our practices now in what is your journalism how do you do your journalism right now? I can talk about how I do it, but I want to hear about how you do yours for what it, what is your practice? So practice. Um <laughs> So what do I do? So it's split between two things. About half my time goes into like what I think of as like box strategic. So I'm an executive producer on our Netflix show. I'm working a lot on the Recode partnership that we're working on. Um, I'm working on, you know, helping, we're doing a new YouTube show. So like Vox does a lot of stuff and I'm involved in, in a lot of that. Then the other half is what I think of as my work. So I do two Ezra Klein shows a week, which if you don't listen to that podcast, Recode Decode listeners, it's a great second podcast to Recode Decode. <laughs> um, it it, it complements in really nice ways and it's much longer and slower paced. Yeah. Um, so you might he, enjoy he, that as he well. He came to me when I started doing podcasts and he's like, I like this podcast thing. And he's, he's like, I'm thinking of doing it. It was so wonky. And I was like, well, have Joe Biden on to start. And he's like, well, I think the agriculture secretary is fascinating about farm <laughs> subsidies. And I was like, Joe Biden's sure fun. 
Like, you remember that? And then you did the agriculture secretary. I, <laughs> I, that sounds exactly like something I do, although I've not been like, able to actually land the agriculture secretary. It was like the undersecretary. It was literally like farm subsidies. And I was like... <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, here's a question I actually have for you before right, we get into okay. my journals. Okay, practice. all right. Okay. Do you find that your podcast downloads are correlated highly with how famous a person is? No. I don't either, and it's something no. I love about podcasting. No, no, not at all. So, like, one thing I mean, I found Elon Musk that, went off. Yeah, the yeah Elon Musk rails, like, you get stuff but, like that. Yeah, yeah. But it. I find that I have on a lot of people who are like, let's say, like B-list famous, right? Like, not Elon Musk, okay. but way better known <laughs> than like random professors okay. I have on, and okay. the random professors often yes. do much better. Yep, I agree. And it's something I just you love. Like, know. the audience is into like like new ideas and somehow yep. it spreads. I think yes. it's the coolest thing yeah. about the medium. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so about half my time goes into the, the two podcasts, the two EK shows and the weeds yeah. and, you know, my own kind of writing and I do some yeah. videos. And because of the podcast, one thing that's been good for me is I just, oh, and then I'm writing a book. And so yeah. okay. <laughs> I try to keep those things like as tightly coupled as I can. What's so the book about? What's the book is about political polarization and identity and basically why everything is fucked up. Um, okay. But it's like an effort to create... A light read for A light read, all. right? An effort to create a kind of model of, um, of like why, we're so- why the parties are sorting in the way they are and how that's upending other institutions and politics and making us think about ourselves and each other differently. So a lot of what's on the podcast has to do with things I'm thinking about and studying for the book. So they like, go in between each other. They all, they, it doesn't work if they don't all feed. Right, they all um, feed together for the general and idea. The thing I, I was thinking about when you said, you know, what is your practice? I do a fair amount of reporting. I talk to a lot of people. I mean, I still do a lot of that. A lot, a lot of my reporting is among um, academics or people who I feel have like a high elevation on things. Some of it is among politicians, but less of it lately. And then the other thing is, I just am reading a lot of books lately. I'm reading a lot more books than I am news because I kind of feel I have a reasonable handle on the news and I don't have a reasonable handle on the why. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to spend a lot more time by getting some perspective. And that's been good. You did this on a call the other day. You were like talking about books you were reading. I was like, books. On that's what? Cool. On call? No, you did it on a call we had. You were you were in your room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, was, yeah, but you were you were like all these books. Was I was going through a long – yeah, I was I, – <laughs> We were on a meeting and I ended up talking about Yochai Benkler's um, yeah, network propaganda yeah. about the way different about the way the left and right media ecosystems have developed. I, I, it's a useful book, but I, I can't say I feel like it really um, worked on that call. Yeah, I know it didn't. I was it, like, it didn't really light up the room. I was like, I just read People magazine and Dolly Parton is cool. <laughs> I was like, it was great. But, but I, was how like, is, I was fascinated that you were doing such heavy, like it was almost college-like. And I was like, it was like. I think my process, particularly right now with the book, is more, it almost works a little bit more like I'm an academic than I'm a. Right, like, but it's part of your journalism, I think. Yeah, that's kind of how yeah. I do my, yeah. my And journalism. so when you call people, do you do you call people all day or do you just text with them? How do you. How no, do you I, do I almost never text with them. In fact, you and I, I think often have communication breakdowns because I'll email you and you'll text me. <laughs> and then nobody ever responds to anybody. Um, and email. I, I don't like texting. It's like I just don't want. I don't want my phone to ever interrupt me doing anything for any yeah, reason. All I do is text. I hate email. Yeah, I, I, I like email. I just found fifty-three emails from New York Times people to me. I, apparently, I have a New York Times address, <laughs> and I have it on my phone. And I didn't know they. I, Brett Stevens wrote me, which I was glad not to get. But <laughs> but I like I like um, I, I spend a lot of time calling people. Yeah. Um, okay. So and, you call. And the podcast is reporting for me. Right. Um, I assume it is yes, for it you is. too. Yes, it is. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's ideas and reporting and concepts. <laughs> I was talking with someone here in the audience, and and he's very kind. And he said, you know, I learned a lot about questioning from you. And I said, well, what did you learn? 
Um, and he said, well, when you question people, what you do is you go and tell them your theory of what you already think and ask them to respond to it. Ah, nice. It's like, yeah, that is how I, that, that is kind of how I report too. It's like, I'm working on this story. Like, yeah. what do you think? Like, how can right. you help me fill in the blanks of it? And I've just made that into a podcast. And so right, right. we talk at, at Vox, we have this line, like using the whole news buffalo. And so the idea is that you want to use as much of the work you're doing. So it's like, if you're working on a story, like maybe you want to do a Q&A with some of the people you're reporting on and then like a shorter piece and then eventually a feature comes out and then like, then we put it on the weeds as a podcast. I mean, if you're, you want to use the whole news buffalo. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So essentially it's the, enough about my concepts. What do you think about my concepts? Exactly. Right. Okay. So, but that is, that is a reporting technique. I use the podcast absolutely as reporting, you know, which is interesting. And also relationship building between me and the subjects. Sometimes people I didn't know well or some, or people I didn't Mm -hmm. have. So you, so do you, do you make the old traditional phone calls or you do that? And what else? So besides reading, reading things, making phone calls, I, I do sometimes see people in person. It has right. happened. Okay. Um, All right. All right. I, I am doing it less since I came out here because I've instructed that. But, you know, in Washington, I spend a lot of time going up to the Hill or to the White House right. or to some think tank or another. Um, I don't know. I do all I, – I, I take in information in most of the ways you would think. You sometimes do. I watch – I, I podcast. Yeah. Um, has it changed? Yeah. The thing that's really changed is I've basically stopped reading any social media, which for a long time was a big part of my news diet. So I don't read Twitter. I don't read Facebook. I took everything off my phone. After you took Instagram off your phone, yeah. that was the last thing I had. I took it off my yeah, phone. Yeah, good idea. Um, so you know what I've actually been doing recently? Well, I've been, been talking to my kids, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I talk uh, to them. Uh, on Instagram or just in general? No, they never stop talking. My kids call me all the time. I've got boys who never stop communicating. I was like, can't you That's be great. sullen? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know how kids are like, oh, my kids never say anything at home. I'm like, my kids never stop telling me things. <laughs> I'm, I've started using a bunch of like, I have a lot of news homepages or right. apps on my phone. So I actually really at- like the New Yorker app. Okay. There's not that much on it, which is nice. Like okay. I feel like I can manage it. <laughs> okay. They don't. They have this Today app. And well it's like, done, they don't David put, Remnick. They don't put everything up all at once, so you're yeah. going through it, and it's like it's not. I feel like I can complete Edible. things there. It's, uh, you can finish it. Okay. Yeah. So so and then when you get you you don't do uh, scoopy news though, right? Yeah, that's not your. That's no, never not been really. Your, I mean, that, I I will. If something happens and I can break something in the course of doing something, I will. Right. But that's not what but I you're specialize not on that in. adrenaline high no. kind of thing. Yeah, I've stopped doing that, which is I did a lot. Of, I mean, you were the master. Of I was. I'm scoops. tired of it. It's, I actually the other day there were like seven scoops, and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, what I mean? and someone's like, Kara, I've got this. Room. I'm like, I don't but care. this is a point you've made that yeah. you used to be able to capture more of the value of a scoop. Yes, like, there's, now no there's, there's no value. There's no value to some scoops anymore. Not 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 at all. Like literally last night, someone called me. Someone was like, I'm going to sleep. Doesn't that seem like kind of a problem for the news, though? Yes, it does. Like it's an economic problem for the news. But it isn't. It, like it doesn't it matter. It doesn't matter. Once it gets, see, before you could have all the scoops. Like we, we, Recode, we were specialized in, first of all, we specialized in scoops, which was like we would get them all. And they seemed more important than they actually really were. I mean, in, in a lot of ways. But they were because it was, it was because the other, because ha- having been at like the, at the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, things were brought to us and then we laid them back out. You know, a lot of that wasn't amazing reporting. It was they handed it to you, which I hated. I hated that. So someone once gave me this great concept of a level one and level two scoop. Right. Like a level one is something that everybody would have known soon anyway. Yeah. Like right before, every four years before people announce their vice presidential candidates, there's this huge like crush of news organizations trying to know it 15 minutes before. And it's this huge coup. But it's like we would have known in 15 minutes. Like you could have just done anything else. 
Um, and then there's level two, like you wouldn't have known it, yeah. right? right? Like unless yes. you got it, you wouldn't have known right. it. And that stuff is super valuable. I love those. I love yeah. those. I still love those. Like we, when, I still like a, when we broke the story about Yahoo hacking years ago, I felt great about that. And and, and because they weren't going to tell anybody, that kind of stuff. I like yeah. those. Um, you know, some of them, yes, you're right. There's different levels of them. And I so I don't spend almost any time on that anymore because what happens is you do a scoop and now you can't get them all anymore. And before you could, you can get a lot of them or make it seem like it. And and then they they move so fast now, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have any, it just doesn't matter. All the time you put into it doesn't matter. And most of them are level one scoop, like that people will find out 10 minutes later kind of stuff. So it's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. So we tend to try to do the fast follow are, are much smarter stories. I think that's what we, sp- I'm not doing as much uh, day-to-day journal. I know what's going on. Um, I don't do as much. Uh, People are pounding on the doors to get in here. Oh, okay, all right, okay. <laughs> that must um, be exciting for the people who live on top of every event. Um, so, so we don't do the most, I'll get back. We don't do the, the news stuff is not, is, I'm, I don't do the website. I'm not running a website, but I don't think that matters as much. I think the, the reaction and the extra, the, the, the better stories are the ones that are, the longer stories, the more smarter stories, the explainer stories are much, which you guys pioneered, are much more important. And to me, I, to me, I think the, the live, these are live events, and also the podcasts are where the real stuff happens. I mean, like, that's where Mark Zuckerberg talked about Holocaust deniers being okay. Like, good, good people on both sides. Um, that's where Elon talked a lot about his SEC stuff. Like, he's just going to tweet what he wants. Like, news was broken there so, or on stages of code. So I think that's what I think people find interesting. And I found fans or people that like my stuff, that's what they, li- that's what they tend to value, I guess, value. But it isn't, like, one way to think about that that we were wrong in the media for a long time about which part of our work people would find most interesting. Like I think of a lot of your work as there are things journalists did before they wrote the story Mm -hmm. that you were particularly good at and it's why you got all the scoops. But now you're actually just putting a microphone to that part. You get to listen to the whole Kara conversation, not just the part that got into the story, not just the part the Wall Street Journal like had room for. And, you know, in in a lot of my work, I feel like what I'm often doing is like pulling up like the model of politics that I use to evaluate everything else. Instead of like seeing everything that got filtered through my model, you like see the model itself. Like a lot of my big stories, you know, like I wrote this piece I'm very proud of this year called White Thread in a Browning America. And it's like a piece that informs like every piece I do, but instead of it being in my head and you get pieces like run through the mechanism that I used to decide what news is, you get the mechanism. Right. And, but also, but you can think about smart. I mean, one of the reasons I did the Times column, because I wanted a global platform for some of these, like a lot of stuff I wrote on Recode and it got, it had resonance within the community. Um, but, but like I wrote one piece I thought was terrific, uh, right after when the, all the tech people went up to the, up to Trump Tower and I called them sheeple and it was great, you know, and, and I, except for shame, these awful rich people, there's not enough, you know, they're so poor, all they have is money, stuff like that. Um, and how dare they not talk about immigration? How dare they not talk about the tolerance issues, all the things that Trump was railing against? They never said a word. And so that was a great column. And it had resonance within the tech community, but it didn't. But but the reason why was that it had a bigger resonance with a wider range of people. And so, there is a there is a value to the print publication, not just the print, not really the print, but in a in a broader sense that I still think does matter. Like thoughtful takes on the news, not hot takes. I hate hot takes. I hate them. There's so many people writing hot takes now all over the place. How do you distinguish between a hot take, a smart take? Um, 
other like a boring take. A boring, that's easy. Well, that's easy. That one's easy. A I've, I, I was joking with somebody the other day that I want to start um, a, a vertical box of lukewarm takes. Yeah, because like a lot of a lot of things like the lukewarm views. But how do you? What is a hot take to you, and what is a smart take? A right? really stupid, shallow idea that is that is just like. I'm going to say something real controversial and then have nothing to back it up with and I'm just going to say it over and over again. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's, it's, it's like the dumb person sitting next to you at a Brooklyn dinner party. Like, I don't know what else to put it. You know what I mean? I've been, do you know what I mean? Like, I didn't see that drive-by of Brooklyn coming at all. <laughs> like, I was just sitting here, we talked DC, SF. I just at like, one. I did, I'm glad, I'm glad we hit New York. Do you know I'm what? Right. Here's I'm the thing. Right. I was at one this week and I was like, someone, and I can't, I, you know, I'm so, I, Tomorrow I, I turn 56 and I just can't take it anymore. And it's like, and I thank you. So I was like literally at this dinner party and someone said something. I'm like, that's really stupid. And they're like, what? I'm like, I, don't, I just, I wish I could be polite, but that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And they're like, what? I go, I don't, you don't even have any intellectual underpinnings to anything you just said. And I just can't take it. I'm going to finish my dinner over here. And I just, that's what a hot take is. I admire this part of me. you so much. Really, um, yeah. I, can, I just, that's a hot I take. I can it's barely like, it's get like, my external monologue to work at dinner really, parties. Like, really. my internal monologue. Yeah. Like, I just really would not yeah. have, I, I think, the, 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 breaks the are moxie off. to make it work. The bro- breaks are off. But I think hot takes have taken over a lot of even really good uh, journalistic institutions. And they've hired a lot of people that do hot takes. And I hate them. I, hate, I think they're, they, I think it brings it yeah. down. It's something I, I, I think about is that, when I started blogging, like in 2003, there, like that was early blogging. 2001 is sort of like the beginning of it, a little bit earlier with Dave Weiner, and there was so little political opinion available. Like if you wanted political opinion, I, I grew up in um, Irvine, as I mentioned, so we got the LA Times. Like, and not that when I was 10, I was looking for political opinion, but if I had been, if at 10, I'd wanted more political opinion. It's like we got the LA Times op-ed page, and that was it. I mean, we didn't subscribe in my house to any political magazines. There was no cable news. There was no, it's so weird to think about this. There was no political opinion. Right. And then, I mean, one reason blogs took off was that all of a sudden there was more political opinion and more voices and perspectives could be recognized. And there were weird political opinions and normal ones and hot ones and people cursed and they used different, it was great, but it still wasn't that much. It wasn't what most places did. And then like everything is online, everything is easily accessible and everybody explodes looking at blogs and also looking at what's cheap to produce, the amount of available political opinion. And now we're drowning in political opinion. Right, There's so just, much. Just political opinion, opinion on everything. All, all opinion, on, yes. on everything. And some of it's fantastic, by some the way. Great. Some of it's really funny. Like there was a series of really funny Michael Cohen months today that made me laugh all day long. And we're like, great. But, and Twitter and Facebook, they're also right. people's, it's not that opinions are bad. It's just that one thing I think is so weird is how fat, how rapidly we moved from, I think, like a well-informed person like going about the world would have liked a lot more thoughtful opinion about things mm-hmm. to, it's like hard to get away from all the opinion there is but about I, things. I don't think people don't want it. What happened, I think w- w- something we did at Recode a lot was we would we would have, like we would tell you, like you were trying, you were seeing the mechanics of things. We'd say, ugh, you know, Peter Kafka is the perfect person. He's like, let me tell you what's going on with Comcast. He is the perfect person. He is, like in that way. He was like, this is a shitty deal. So here's why. You know, like, and you wouldn't ever do that. You know, you had the to be sure statement in the wall. To be sure, some people feel this deal is problematic. You know, that line, which means it's a shitty deal. Um, and so I think we took the, we pulled it off and said, look, what we really need to tell you is this is 
this is a piece of shit. Like, you know what I mean? That's the kind of thing we, we did a lot of. And then we would take, uh, we would use illustrations a lot to show that. Like, my favorite thing, and I've, I, I, I want you to all go look at it. We had a ball gag that we would put on Eric Schmidt all the time every time Google said something stupid. Excuse me? It was an illustration of Eric oh, Schmidt. Oh, an illustration. Ball. It was an, il- it was an illustration. <laughs> Ezra, you naughty Ezra. Um, so, oh, see, there's so much. This is going to be a good partnership. I see this already. You're already been affected by San Francisco. Um, so, um, so, uh, so it was great because we would be like, we'd have a news story. Like once again, Ari Schmidt said something in, inane, and it was it was stupid. And we had the ball gag picture, and it would be like perfect. It was to me that was a perfect piece of journalistic. It was really well done. I'm, and, and the Pulitzer Committee, I'm sure, recognized no. that. <laughs> no. no, but I'm saying, I, but it was interesting because then everyone else sort of copied, not the ball gag, but like everyone else went that direction. Something so, that was, sorry. So I, everyone went that direction, and I think it was not the worst direction to go in for journalists, but I do think that now everybody's kind of, like everyone suddenly is making, it's like making avocado toast. Like everyone's making avocado toast and not everybody makes a great avocado toast. I think it's hard, honestly, to make a bad avocado toast. That's like the genius of that. But the one thing I do want to say, and I can tell that we're, we're supposed to move yeah, to Q&A in a sec. Right. Let, let me just say one last thing before we move to Q&A, which is something that was really interesting to me to see when I was at The Post was that you could write the same story as news, news analysis, and opinion. Yeah. It was just like you were just saying that there's some people think this is a shitty deal, right? Like right. critics say Comcast deal is terrible. Right. Um, and then there's... Uh, like the kind of like kind of bland, but still like news analysis colon Comcast deal has problems. Yeah. And then like, then there's like opinion, like Comcast sucks, right? right like, right, yeah. no. and you could write the same thing different ways. It's like who you quoted and what, what yeah. order it went in. Right. Like that was always really um, interesting to me. And I always thought that in, in the traditional way we did it, we made it too hard for the news side to tell the truth and too easy for the opinion side to lie. But now I think like we also um, sometimes, Opinion's gotten so easy and thick out there that we don't do enough of the stuff that was behind a lot of that news. There was like good process, even if there wasn't always good product. And I think like we don't want, I don't want the old even-handed news product, but I do want to bring more of that process into it. That's a really good point. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles, and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All right, questions. We didn't even get to Facebook. Which yes, we don't um, care. so we're going to do open Q&A. Uh, oh, look, here that just filled itself. What happened? What are you talking about? The grapefruit juice just... Listen, Dobby. What? <laughs> are you sure? No, it's like Dobby. Do you Dobby? Are you sure? I'm just... making a Harry Potter oh, reference. People okay. without, people without children, which happen. is most of you people. <laughs> okay, so we like to give the public an opportunity to interact with you guys yes, directly please. here because it's a small living room setting. So yeah. we're going to start with the question right over there. I'm going to hand you the mic. And if you don't mind standing up and saying your name, we appreciate it. Real quick, does this part go on the podcast too? Yes, it does. All right, good for me to know. Yeah, great. <laughs> it all Hi. goes up. My name is Joelle Stewart, um, and I have a question um, actually about, I thought it was really interesting how you were talking about the difference between the cultures in D.C. versus over here in San Francisco. And I'm wondering um, a little bit about the uh, process versus product question, um, which is that the product of the news, seem, the news in so much as it is a product is uh, being driven um, more so by the imperatives of the market that exists here. You know, it's like the um, limitless growth opportunities that Silicon Valley sees, uh, and that kind of has not kind of, it has certainly diminished the influence of local reporting and so I'm, uh, local journalism and so I'm wondering about that and uh, to your point about the Facebook question, how the um, like the pivot to video imperative has really demolished a lot of the smaller scale things, like we just saw Mike last week uh, or two weeks ago or something uh, fire a whole bunch of people um, Everybody. Everybody, yeah. yeah everybody, so I'm wondering about uh, your takes on the influence of uh, technology on journalism specifically regarding those two things. Thank you. Why don't you start? Yeah, so um, so it's a great question and, and a couple of thoughts on it. One, um, oh, pivot to video. It like makes me so mad. We don't like um, that. Vox, uh, we, we publish videos before we publish text. And video was an important part of our journalism. We didn't go into it as a business case. And so like today we have more than 5 million subscribers on YouTube. It's our biggest platform. We have a Netflix show. It really made me angry when a bunch of publishers went into video and I'm not calling this out of anybody in particular, but a lot did. Whereas like what they were trying to do was like flood the zone with volume because video had higher um, CPMs. So it's like people would accidentally click on a bad video on an article that was getting heavy traffic. Or, you know, there was this move to Facebook and everybody's doing this like short, silent, autoplay, silent newsreel. And it's like, it wasn't good work. There's like, there's a lot of, I think, business in video, um, but there's not good business in video. It's just like as a business strategy, you need an audience strategy. So that's one piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, you do if you do the product because some advertiser wants it. Mm -hmm. It's like doing a com like we do conferences. We do our conferences because we want to do our conferences and then we find the advertise the sponsors. We don't do them because the whenever the sponsor comes to you, we'd like to do something on the future of innovation and AI and the ethics. I'm like, I'm gonna go over here. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Like you know what I mean? And and so that's the I think that's one of the things. And to the local go ahead, you fin go the local news question, I think is a really important one because I just was discussing this the other day I interviewed A.G. Salzberger, who's the new, uh, what is he, publisher? He's the publisher. You interviewed him. Yeah, I know, I forget. Anyway, <laughs> okay. 
I think he's the. I get it wrong. He's the publisher of the New York Times now. He's the son of uh, the other Salzberger. There's lots of them, um, and he's very smart. He's a smart young man. And um, one of the things I said, what if you do if you got a billion dollars from like Lorraine Jobs, who has several, many of them, and would be kind of cool. And he's like, well, we want to make our own billion. I'm like, I, I don't care. What if would you do with a billion dollars? He could, he wouldn't answer my question, which was irritating to me. But my idea, I was like, if I if I was if I was the New York Times, I was given a billion dollars, I would buy up local newspapers all over the country and do a New York Times job on them, like make them really good across, like that's what I would do with a billion dollars, like bring back local news. Like look what's happened in Miami around Jeffrey Epstein. Like there's just like, if you put money into local news across the country, and I'm talking about a a multimedia effort, like a newspaper, but with all kinds of effort, I think it would be, if I was a billionaire, that's what I would do. I would, that was exactly what I'd find that kind of thing and do something with it. So I have a, a so a couple just quick thoughts on on local news and tech businesses. So one on the on the how product is affected and technology is affected all of our business models. This answer may get me. Um, it, this may be off message, and if so, Jim Bankoff, I'm sorry. Um, but I think for a long time, not a long time, there was a period of time in the media where the idea was that digital media companies were going to be tech companies with tech like scale and tech like returns. And there was all this venture going into it, and that, like there was this idea that it would be more akin to something like a Facebook, not at that scale, but but like that, than actually a media business. And what seems to me to be happening now is it's turned out that's not really true. Um, you are building media businesses online, and they're going to get media business-like returns if things go well, and you need a mix of different revenue strategies. And you know, you're building like a new Condé Nast, things like that. And like, it's a pretty straightforward business model. Um, but it isn't like this exciting, like maybe you, you know, become a ten, fifty, a hundred billion dollar company, um, and you just figure out the business model later. So I think that's one thing that's happening. I think it's been pretty hard. I think a lot of groups didn't go into this with a business strategy. I actually think one good thing for Vox Media is that our CEO, Jim Bankoff, had been around the block in media and tech a bunch of times and I think always was a little bit more sober. Um, but the other thing just about local real quick, I don't know, and this is hard, like I don't know that the market will furnish a business model for as much news as we ideally need to have. I think there's going to have to be, if we're going to get the things, particularly at the local level that we need, there's a real role for philanthropy. And there might even be a role, as there is in a lot of other countries, for the state, for subsidies of different kinds. We do this with arts here. Um, it's not crazy that you might see local journalism as a public good. But I see a lot of money go into local investigative. And I wish I saw more go into actually just building good local journalism institutions. You need a platform for investigative to stand on. People need to be coming every day to read something they care about. And that's what gives the investigative force. I see a lot of people want to invest in or, or fund um, like local investigative, but I'm not seeing as much of what Kara's saying, which is trying to build you basic, know, basic, basic excellent, tech. like new, new generation I local outlets. I think you can make money outlets. at it. I, think I do too, I, but I I'm not sure. Is. I'm not sure you can everywhere and everywhere deserves great local journalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, right here in the front. Yeah, this is a little bit of a follow-on question to that on on local journalism, um, and it has to do with you, you. Both of you were speaking about the decline of sort of cocktail party scoop journalism, and the thing is, in D.C., that's definitely true in terms of the way that our elected officials tend to operate and the te- and the way bureaucrats tend to operate, but it hasn't felt as true when it comes to state houses um, throughout the country. So you know, you have you essentially have fifty different state houses where you've seen capital bureaus 
shut down yeah. over the last several years. And NPR might be the, NPR affiliates might be the only institutions that still have capital bureaus in most state houses. So what role do you see in terms of a resurgence of that sort of cocktail party scoop type of journalism? Well, it's hard because those were always young journalists that were at state house. Like it wasn't always the most experienced, you know, you started off at city hall. Like it was one of the the early ones that you would do. So I think I think what's fallen apart is that mentorship system of moving up. And, and that really is, I think, a problem. I think that's always been a problem right now in journalism is that people at the lower levels don't train up um, upwards. They move very quickly from thing to thing versus getting training. And so I think that's one of the issues that just doing those stories every single day, like doing some, whatever the city council meeting. I mean, I did them. I don't, I don't, I don't know if Ezra did, but I did. I did a lot of those like just endless stories that you just get good at and get smart at and stuff. So I think that's the, one of the problems. And then when they just don't have people there anymore, there's just there's just physically no people covering these things. And so that I don't know what what the answer to that is. I just I mean every it seems to be every state in our in our in our uh, country should have a major newspaper and then a city a major city newspaper, but that's not the case. So I'm not sure what the solution is. I would say statehouse journalism was always cross-subsidized by big city journalism and national journalism. So, like, who did great um, coverage of the California statehouse? Well, to a large extent, the L.A. Times, which also did national and international for that matter, but was also rooted in L.A., which is a huge city, one of the biggest cities in the world. Um, and you had that in smaller ways in a lot of states. Now, in some states, obviously, the statehouse is in the biggest city, but in a lot, it's not. And it's been the weakening of those, like, major metropolitan papers that has really gutted good statehouse coverage because excellent journalists wanted to be at the LA Times and being at the statehouse for the LA Times was a really good way to do it. Or similarly, like the New York Times is based in New York City and like every journalist wants to be at the New York Times or most of them do. Um, but they also send people to Albany and it's like that is how you become a national reporter at the New York Times. Like that's, as yeah, Kara's saying, like that's an important thing. And so I do think it's like the loss of those institutions and like the big city metropolitan mid-sized daily business model that has destroyed statehouse coverage. There have been cool um, efforts to bring it back on its own, like the American Independent Network, but they've died because people don't just want the statehouse coverage. It's got to be bundled with like the city they care about and the region they live in and the national news they care about um, or else you end up having statehouse coverage that is either only philanthropic or it's um, for lobbyists which is not the best kind of state. Or you coverage. have like the New York Times or someone dropping in to a particular state when it gets right. to be. That, and that happens a lot. But so I'm going to get good. to you after this, but can we get uh, to over here in the back? Do you mind coming to me? Because if it goes over there, yes, you're right there. Yes, it's going to do that whole like squeaky whale noise thing. <laughs> if you don't mind saying your name. Um, my name is Rotem Ben-Shahar, and I have a question about false equivalency. Um, so I think the news right now is very, if you look at just what's happening, it's very liberally biased, and I think newspapers have a hard time with that. I read the New York Times religiously, and I think they do great reporting. But if I look, for example, at how they're covering what's happening in Wisconsin, I just get really upset. And I'm wondering um, what you think about that and why you think, you know, in general newspapers have such a hard time talking about Trump lying and, you know, all this false equivalency on both sides. 
You know, it's interesting because I just tweeted something like this because they, why do we keep, he says something false and they write a headline of what he said versus, it was really today, it was the same thing. Um, I, I agree. I just, I, you know, I, I had a, a story, um, I, I, I think reporters type things down. I've said this many, many times. There was a, Peter Thiel was giving a speech at the National Press Club and everyone wrote a news story in what he said. And I was like, what are you doing? Half the things he says are just codswallop. It's bullshit. And so I just did a blog like, oh, he says this, but let me just tell you what actually is happening. And I just did that. And I was like, it was sort, I was sort of irritated by how we were just sort of saying what they, that was, in, that was my, that was an experience I had, but I am irritated by we just say what they said. I just did a podcast with Andrea Mitchell, Chuck Todd, and Hallie Jackson. They were talking about this very thing. It's like, what do you, like, she said, uh, what do you do when he says something crazy every 15, like, what, what, do you not report on it? Do you report on it? Do you not report it? And she goes, at one point in a meeting, because she's the head of her show, she's like, I don't care what he just tweeted. We're going to just do the news. And it was like an actual news story of something. But then he tweeted something that actually was news. And then they're like, they didn't tell her. And she's like, why didn't you tell me that? And like, well, you said not to. And it was like, it, that was the, she was sort of stuck in this situation because so whatever he tweeted was actually a piece of things that some some of them are newsworthy and some of them aren't. But it's she was talking about the difficulty of doing that. And there's a very straight ahead journalist who's been in it forever, uh, really having trouble figuring out what to do because everybody, someone else will rush in and cover it, right? I mean, essentially, you guys you guys don't do reactive stuff like that, do you? Um, we try to do. I mean, we'll react to something that we think is really important. But you know, to to what you're saying there, there's the issue of. Trump tweeted something um, and it was reported in a like a straightforward, dumb fashion. Then there's the issue of Trump tweeted something and everybody's falling all over themselves to call it a lie, but they're also falling all, all over themselves to cover it. I would say the caravan is a really good example of this. Trump dominated the news. Whatever happened to the migrant caravan that was going to destroy America, by the way? Like, here we are weeks later, it's come further forward. Like, somehow the, co- the country has not been destroyed. There was a lot of good coverage of that, but we let him completely dominate the coverage with something that wasn't that big of a story. And so, like, that's another thing, and it goes to to Andrea Mitchell's issue. Um, And so, like, there's... I think a lot of the problem is also deciding, really, what is news and, like, when when to... I'm, all, I'm actually right now, I'm less worried about false equivalents, which I think the news in general has gotten better at, though certainly there are bad examples, than I am about amplification. Like people are manipulating us to amplify them. And I don't think we are nearly sophisticated about how to handle that, nor are the answers nearly as obvious as they were in like somebody's done something terrible, like maybe say it's bad. Here in the front. Hi, my name's Peter Gisela, and I have a question for Mr. Klein about his article, and you can respond, from November, titled, the To Beat Trump, House Democrats Need to Fight on Policy, Not Just Scandals. And in the article, you bring up the reporters' paradox of their desire to cover the Repo- uh, Democrats that are going to talk about Trump's scandals and not policy. And the leadership of the Democrats wanting to focus on policy, but the reporters not covering it. So how does the Democrats resolve that? And how do you persuade the reporters not to try to gin the system by focusing on what's going to be good publicity for them? So the, so one, I'm not sure there is a kind of system-wide solution. I mean, one thing I've tried to do at the places I've been, um, I ran Wonk Blog at the Post, which was a policy-focused vertical. And then Vox is something that, that I, along with Matt Iglesias and Melissa Bell, launched. 
And everywhere that I have run political coverage, I have made it part of the culture that we take policy seriously, Democratic, Republican. If somebody is introducing a big new policy, if Trump is, if anybody is, like we see that as headline news. And by the way, I think the audience does. We've always done really well on traffic. We've actually usually outcompeted more horse race oriented um, publications. So the way kind of I try to handle it is by orienting my um, the the values of the organizations I'm in towards the things that I believe that we believe are important. Um, to the broader point, one one thing I was saying in that piece is that if you looked at how the Democrats ran the election, they didn't spend their time on Trump scandals. They spent a lot of money on ads about health care. Now they're going to be in office and nobody's going to listen to their health care talk um, and everybody's going to uh, cover their scandals. And like if any Democrat anywhere in the House mentions the word impeachment, it will be headline news everywhere all the time. It just was today, actually. There you go. Um, and so that's going to be – that's the tricky waters for them to navigate. Um, I don't advise political figures, so how they navigate it is up to them. But I do think it's something that we in the media need to think a little bit about, about whether or not we – I think that we – I think another way to think about this is the Clinton email coverage during the campaign. Clinton's emails uh, got more coverage than all policy issues in the campaign put together, Trump and Clinton. Um, And by the way, it wasn't close. They got way more coverage. And journalists will often say, well, look, like there was a story. And sure, it was a story. But how big of one, right? Were we ordering things correctly? Because people are taking their cues on what's important from, among other things, how often we're covering it and how often we're covering what else is going on. And was email security really the issue that that election was turning on? I kind of don't think so. So I think that we need to do some soul searching in our own profession. This is what I was saying a little bit earlier with newsworthiness about what we cut, what we believe to be newsworthy and what we don't. Because, you know, right now I think we kind of tell the public newsworthiness is important, but it's actually kind of like outrageous, scandal, secret. It's like a weird cocktail of things. And I don't think we've got that cocktail yeah, because right. Because that stuff does work. I mean, by when you, when, we've talked, Nicole, again, I urge you to listen to the Nicole Wong thing, but when you focus on speed, virality, and engagement, you're going to get those kind of stories and they're going to rise to the top and then people are going to do them. And it's, it's, it, it takes a lot, a very certain kind of person to resist it. It certainly does. It, it, it takes an editor that's like, eh, I'm not interested. I don't hugely agree, to be honest. Um, I think that we have a lot of like received wisdom about this. It isn't quite true. So Every place I've been, it's like, oh yeah, the policy, that's gonna, that's gonna do way worse than the other stuff. And I'm not saying that Trump Russia doesn't do well. Like some of it does. And certainly if you get like, if there's a huge story, but a lot of our top coverage and everywhere I've been has been the policy coverage. I think that often it's harder to do well, but I, I thought about this another way because I was actually going to go make an opposite version of this point. So I went back and I looked at Donald Trump's tweets mm-hmm. and I was like, I wanted to make the point looking at this that when Trump tweets like media is the enemy of the people and blah, 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 that it gets way more pickup on Twitter than when he tweets about jobs numbers or something else like that. And then it turned out I was wrong. Oh, so sure. I couldn't make that point, which is terrible, right. but it was kind of encouraging in a way. Right. I just ask real quick to you, Ezra, on this particular point. Vox is kind of known for being a place that doesn't take the bait and has substantive policy coverage that's also interesting. Oh, I thank you. And um, <laughs> I'm, I just, I'm not saying this to Brown knows you, but there are probably a lot of publications that don't want to cover these things in such a sensational way, yeah. but they feel like if they do it, they won't make the money. They just The business won't survive. So what do you there think? Is, there is a pressure to do the... Sexy. The, the, the on stuff Vox? Uh, no, no, not on Vox. On, on lots of public. You can but see how it. do you how do you not give into the pressure and still keep the business alive? I I don't. I, I just I, I want to keep saying to I don't it. agree that. Um, I agree that we feel this pressure. I don't agree that the pressure is as real as we think it is. The thing that I do think is true is that it's 
quite hard. I think it's harder to do a lot of these policy stories well, to like find the angles on them, to understand how to make them sellable to an audience than some of like the big scandal or the big conflict. Um, now, some places do do it well, right? I, I, I think like if you name most of the really big outlets, they're excellent at this, like the New York Times, Washington Post. But I think that we have been trained to think people don't like this stuff, and we often don't do it well. I think, by the way, policy journalism is particularly hamstrung by false equivalents. Policy journalism, generally speaking, the question people have is like, how does this work and is it good? Like, will it be good for me? And if the answer is I can't tell you, they're going to leave. Now, if you can go and say this is going to be terrible for you or great for you, or this is a great bill or a bad bill, right? Like, I do think it pushes you towards taking a position. I think one reason that the organizations where I've done this, it's done pretty well, is because we've been willing to take positions. And that relates to like what people actually want out of that coverage. And if you can't do that, the coverage tends to fail. But I don't think people don't want to know about things that are important. I think sometimes it's harder. Yeah, but I do think I, twitchy. I think, I think people, people are tired of We, I get the sense that people, I'm, I'm working on another podcast idea and it's so non-twitchy. It's like the opposite. I think just like the podcast, when we started the podcast, one of the things was we, I was told you can't do anything an hour. And I'm like, I'm doing an hour. You know what I mean? Like people, I think, really want substantive discussions. I think if, I think in the next era, leaning into smart is probably a really good idea. Go, yeah. p- pushing towards smart. I got 50,000 retweets today on a tweet about Paul Ryan's record on deficits. Wow. Wow. It's like, I'm thinking you know, in particular, I know stuff. amongst a lot right, of people. Let them here. ask questions. I will. But the, the serious, <laughs> I will. I just an example of this is that oh, Syria video talking. you did, yeah, where you explained the Syrian conflict and all the ins and outs. That I know was that good. was really like policy thing that a lot of people really. I got like 120 million views. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. For, next, um, over there in the striped shirt. Oh. 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 Mazel tov. <laughs> Hi, Anish Jory. Um, so you, you guys raised a really interesting point about news versus analysis versus opinion. So as editors, folks, you have folks working for you. What do you tell the people who work for you? That What is their role as journalists? Is it to just, you know, tell the rest of us that aren't in Washington, aren't going to these parties? Yeah. Is it to tell us what's happening? Is it to provide an opinion on what's happening? Or is it to provide analysis? And I think what's tough is... We're, you know, liberal readers are never going to read Breitbart. Conservative re- readers are not going to read some of the liberal outlets. A lot of folks don't read just pure news. Those, those don't get clicks. And so opinion seems to become important, but there are a lot of problems with what we see in the echo chamber of Twitter. So as, as leaders, what do you tell folks that look up to you? What is the role of journalism? Well, I'm way down the other road for a long time now. I've always thought that, uh, you know, that the, I, I, I look at it as reported I, I look at it as reported analysis. You can't do analysis without doing the reporting. And we've been doing that at Recode since the very, since all things D and before is I was so tired of that to be sure statement. Those really, I, I just was exhausted by it. And I, I actually had a fit at the Wall Street Journal when it was, there was a story about web, web band. I don't remember one of them. And they were, they were like, you need Carrie, you need to get an, you need to get an analyst to say what you, what you already know from your smarts and doing the reporting and having analysis to say what you want to say. I'm like, why can't I say what I want to say? I already know. Well, like, I'm going to tell you, this is a disaster. It's going to go up in smoke. And, and they wouldn't let me do it. And then you had to put the to be sure statement, which is to be sure, comma. You know, some people think, and then you quote someone, and it just was ridiculous. And I was, and I, I had this whole screaming monologue in my head that I decided to create a website, like with my screaming monologue. And so it was. I think what we do is, is you have to do the reporting to say, for example, a story I worked on, like, you know, 
Yahoo is a goat rodeo, people. Let me just tell you, I've been inside and it's a goat rodeo in there. I'm tell- you know what I mean? Like, What's a goat rodeo? A rodeo with goats. <laughs> so, so, do you know what I mean? Like, or a Explanatory journalism, folks. Right, exactly. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, I, I have done the reporting. I've talked to hundreds of people. I'm going to tell you this is a mess or I'm going to tell you this is going on at Uber and stuff like that. And so what, we, what I do with my reporters is tell me what you found out and then tell them, tell the readers that. And don't be scared to say this is the determination you made because you're not wrong because you spent the time doing it. But, but you can make a determination of something. And so we've been doing that forever. We, 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 that, we did that from the beginning. And I want them to really do that a lot. But they can't do it without, they can't be just a pontificating person who doesn't know, who just has an opinion about something. They've got to go in there and find out and talk to everybody. Um, and then give people a chance to respond, too. That's the other thing, is letting these companies or people you cover respond um, so you're fair to them. And so I think you, 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 that's, it's over. The, the old kind of way you do journalism is o- over because it's useless and it's not true, um, really, I think. But that's what, we've been doing it forever, so it's not fresh and new. We have time for one or two more questions here with the white collar. That's you. Oh, there's a hat. Yeah, the hat couldn't come out before. Okay. Um, hi, my name's Ari Israel, and my question is to Kara. When did you decide that you were cool being called a bitch? Because clearly <laughs> all women walk the fine line between weak and witch. So. Witch or bitch? Which one? Uh, whichever one is allowed for the stream. Well, there's so many. Any of them. We can do anything on the it's podcast. podcast. Anything goes. Uh, I was always comfortable. I was comfortable from the day one. From I mean, you know. I'm, I don't know. I was it just. I was interesting. I was just at this lunch called the Old Grumpy Girls of the New York Times Network. At the, they had a lunch there um, they, they, for women at the New York Times. It was great. It was this lunch. It's something like Old Girls Network. I don't know. Anyway, um, I they, someone asked me that, and I was like, I don't know. I just have always been obnoxious. It's just since the beginning, and so I don't know. I don't know. I just don't care what people think of me. I, I wish I did. I know I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We have, you know uh, something? Fascinatingly, nobody, nobody calls me that. People don't attack me that much on Twitter. It's fascinating. Someone was just pointing out to me, I don't get that strafed on... I get less strafed on Twitter than you might imagine, and I'm not clear why that is. I, uh, I guess, yeah. I once um, saw you get attacked on Twitter, oh. or even what you perceived as an attack on oh, Twitter, and it? you responded with such overwhelming force that I don't... <laughs> That I don't think it's a mystery at all. Like I was like, really? I am, I am never gonna piss Kara off like, yeah. under any circumstances. Oh, I know what it was. Yeah, that was not nice. <laughs> I don't. Don't worry about being called anything. Honestly, you can call me a bitch. Uh, hi, I'm Barb Kinney. Um, so we've touched on Twitter a lot tonight. I think this is a good last question because I want to know about the future of hi, journalism. Barb. Hi, Kara. How are you? I knew her back in DC. DC. When she was a pup, and I was. Um, I was never a pup. (laughs) But so so I've been frustrated with Twitter as all the reporters are reporting on Donald Trump's tweets. And part of me always wished that everybody would just boycott it for a while. But I now know that's not going to happen because, as you said earlier, um, how how I guess important Twitter can be with what people have to say. It's a platform. But what is the future of journalism if all we do is report on Donald Trump's crazy tweets? So, uh, so a few things. I'm so sympathetic to the direction of this question, but I want to stand up um, a, a bit for, for my colleagues and say, 
even now, even at its worst, there is so much other great work going on. Part of the problem is that some of what gets lifted up through the algorithms, and I think this is even more true actually on cable news, there can be a focus on some of the work we do and other parts of it get lost. But there's just remarkable journalism happening, not just on Trump and politics, but, you know, out, you know, on foreign, you know, foreign policy. I mean, a million great things are happening at any given moment. And so there's like a lot of bad stuff, but, but a lot of good. Um, I do think that the future of journalism, particularly as people are moving more to subscription models, particularly as you can't just rely on the algorithm to have a business model, particularly as like you actually have to build enough of a relationship with the audience that they're going to fund you in some way or another, like they're going to take actions on your behalf. I do think and I hope that that's going to push for a certain amount of quality journalism. I don't think you can ever really just be on Trump's tweets. I think that you need more than that. But I think by the same token that if we don't learn how to stop letting – let me put it this way. The problem is not that which – the problem is not that we report on Trump's tweets. It's which ones we report on. We have decided that the president saying something offensive – I don't want to say crazy because genuinely crazy is newsworthy, but offensive often isn't. Um, the president saying something offensive is more important than any other president saying something important. I remember watching George W. Bush or Barack Obama give these very carefully crafted speeches on the future of manufacturing policy where they found a setting. They went to a steel mill in Ohio and, you know, and it was like actually a guide to policy. And like they could not for love or money get anybody to cover that. And Donald Trump can get up and call Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas and it's a front page everywhere. And if we let um, like the craziest actors crowd everything else out, if there's no room for people who speak more quietly and more soberly and more thoughtfully, then we are going to get the kind of politics we create. There's a very good argument to be made that the reason Donald Trump won the um, Republican primary is because we he squeezed out coverage of every other candidate by just being more outrageous than any of them all the time. That's a terrible, terrible um, business uh, incentive structure. So to what you were saying – I'm a little less worried in this respect about the future of journalism than I am about the future of politics. I'm worried that we in journalism are setting up a really terrible incentive structure in politics. I think it's actually a gen- – I am very comforted that Michael Avenatti did not see a path for himself. Um, but that might have had other dimensions to it, right? He was under legal clouds and other things. I am worried that uh, we are creating a very, very clear way of winning now where it's like, if you can just say enough nuts stuff so nobody else can get coverage, you win. And that has journalism- intended to work for everybody. I think he's an unusual case. So that, you, That's what I'm comforted I, I by. I do Avenatti. also think that people are a little like, I think, I, I believe I am the only person who watched every episode of The Apprentice. I did watch it. I'm sorry, people. I did. I get I get why he's popular completely. I watched every episode. You get tired of the show after a while. And I think a lot of journalists are tired of the show. I get a sense that people are tired of the show. Do you know what I mean? Like the show gets, oh, let's, like, it's sort of like the Truman Show. It's like, no, oh, this blowhard, fuck him. Like, you know, I mean, at the end yeah, of The have Apprentice. Have you seen The Truman Show? Yes. No, no the, the movie. No, at the end he leaves. I know what that happens. I know what that happens. <laughs> I know. I know. But 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 at the end of the Truman Show, they're like, "What's on next?" Oh, like, right. Remember yes, that's yeah. the that, last that that's the last line of that movie, which is a fantastic movie. You've ever seen the Truman See, Show? She did watch it. I did. Of course, yeah. I did. Um, I lo- I've watched it fifty times, uh, <laughs> along with broadcast news and some others. But I did watch The Apprentice, and you do get you did get, by the end the formulaicness, the tiredness, the the it got exhausting, and you turned it off. 
Like, I know it sounds crazy, but you did. And I think that's, I, I feel, journal, I, I, that interview with Chunk Tan and, and Andrea and Holly, you felt it. You feel it when you talk to journalists. You feel it in, everyone's tired of the show. So it would be interesting to see what happens. And what's really interesting right now, there's a show on, on Broadway right now, Network. I urge you all to watch the movie and read the book, uh, Network. It's a, a Broadway show right now. Uh, it's really fascinating to, to understand how all that was so outrageous and every bit of it is now existing, which is, fat, which is except for the, the, the murder on television so far. Um, but it was real, it's just a really interesting time. So I have, I have some hopes too. I think people are really leaning. People seem to be, the stuff we're making money on is all smart and long and not short and twitchy. It seems like it. And so that's a positive thing. So I'm going to end this by asking uh, Ezra a question. What's your favorite journalism business model these days? The ones that make money. Yeah, okay. But which one? Which one? Like, end, end on that with that, though. What's my favorite? Um, one of my, I'll say this. One of my favorite things that we're doing, the thing that we're doing that we weren't doing a couple of years ago, and it's been really good for us, I think, like our souls, mm-hmm. is we're... Produ- we've become a production house. So with Midroll, we're making Today Explained, which is a daily podcast. And with That's Netflix, great. we're making Explained. And um, we have a, another one coming with YouTube. And I am, I think those things have expressed like the soul of what we want to be as well as anything we've ever done. And they're slower and they have a very different kind of incentive structure around them. And it's felt healthy. It's felt healthier than a lot of the other things we've tried. And so that's been really encouraging. And to what you were just saying, to what you're making money on being your best work, those are places where we're making money on our best work. And like that too has felt healthy. So that maybe is my, if I had to pick a favorite, but I love anything that allows us to actually fund our journalism. Right, but it's true. And what's really interesting is like, I think about my kids too, because my son, like he literally was like, do you know Ezra Klein? I'm like, yes. And he goes, can I meet him? And I'm like, okay. Like, I'm kind of famous. Like, but he doesn't, like, but he wanted to go in and meet Ezra. And there's this picture of him, like, it's Ezra Klein. But now he likes Carlo. He likes Carlos Maza. He loves Carlos Maza. Awesome. I was like, don't you want to see Ezra Klein? He's like, no, I want to see Carlos Maza. Now, so, Host um, of our, our Strike Through series on YouTube, which right. is awesome. He loves it. He loves it. It's amazing. So I have great, my kids watch substantive stuff, even if they're doing it. I, I have to say, I, my one son in the morning watches. So you see them watching substantive stuff, which which I think is really interesting. So I do think there's a tiredness of the twitchy and the tiredness of the thing. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But anyway, Ezra Klein, welcome to San Francisco and the Bay Area. Before we, before we, finish, yeah. before we finish, I do want to take 10 seconds and just say something about you. No, okay? don't. This, you, this is a conversation about the future of journalism. And yeah. there are a few people right now writing in journalism that have the courage and the brilliance and the chutzpah that you do. Chutzpah? The chutzpah. Chutzpah. And I just want to say that um, people like you who, are, who have been willing and continue to be willing to hold power uh, accountable and to hold people's feet to the fire and do it so articulately, Thank you. you... Thank you. Are the face of journalism and the future of journalism? Yeah, I'm real old, so, sweetie. We are so lucky. <laughs> I'm getting a little tired. We're lucky to have Come on, you, young people. And so, so is Vox. Thank you. Um, and, let's give. And I just want to say, Ezra and I are going to be making some really cool stuff together. Um, a lot's been reported on this stuff, but we. One of the things that's great about working at Vox and other places is 
we just change as we do. We do. We find interesting things. We shift. We just decide on things. And one of the great things about working for it is the freedom to do that and to say, ah, oh, this isn't working. We're doing this. And we have some really exciting stuff. And there's also Casey Newton in the audience right there um, who's doing an amazing uh, newsletter. There's all kinds of stuff that we're doing that I think is really fun for us to do and also really great content. And so we're, we're pretty jam- jazzed about Can I say a couple upcoming stuff. events real quick? Yes, go ahead. So on Wednesday, we have a conversation on the future of work with Dela Jana. Oh, nice. Um, and then we have a bunch of other fun events. Next week, we have um, our local town hall with a District 8 supervisor, Raphael Mandelman. Um, and if you guys liked tonight, please share your love. It's Welcome to Manny's on Facebook and online. And let's give a final big round of applause to Kara Swisher and Ezra Klein. Thank you to Kara for uh, taking the time to ask me all those questions. Hopefully my answers were somewhat coherent. Thank you to you for being here. Thank you to you for rating the podcast, if you don't mind. And also here as we get to the end of the year, if you've got a favorite episode and you wouldn't mind sharing it on the socials with your friends or just emailing it to a friend, whatever it might be. If there's one episode from this year that moved you and you want to tell other people about it, I would be very grateful and also be cool for me to know which ones you really liked. So if you do end up tweeting that out, hashtag the EK show, and I'll be able to see what you guys were all into. Thank you, of course, to my producer, Julian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.